So we're going to open up to Acts chapter 28. Why don't you open up with me in your Bibles? I'm really excited to be preaching again this morning after two weeks ago, Elise and I preached through Acts chapter 27. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 28 verse 1 to 5. Um, So let's open up together. You'll find it on the screen behind. Let's begin to read. Before we do, can I just pray? Father, we thank you for your incredible word. It's power, it's life, uh, just unparalleled, God. And we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come and open up this text and to speak into our lives and do something powerful. Father, we come expectant that you're going to do something because that's who you are. And so we get ourselves ready today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, get ready. Get ready for God's word. So, here we are, Acts chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Anybody heard of Malta? Anyone been to Malta? Anyone from Malta in the house? Yeah, we know how Kirsty is. I don't know if she's here today, but it's good. Shout out to you guys. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Have you ever been caught in the rain? One time about three years ago, we went as a cell group on a camping trip, and uh, it was literally a disaster. It was a complete and utter gong show. Nothing went right at all. And everybody was given a single task And everybody failed at that task. The cooking guy brought the cooker and the propane, but he didn't bring the connection between the two. The firewood guy brought one log and left it in the rain. And the guys who were setting up the tents completely failed to put the guy ropes in and the pegs in. And it was just an absolute disaster. Night came and it began to rain. That's always nice when you camp in, right? And so I actually had a really good night's sleep. I had a double airbed, and uh, I was really comfortable there. For some reason, Elise didn't choose that. She chose to sleep on the floor in her tent with the girls. Why she would choose to do that, I don't know. <laughs> um, and so I'm lying there, and it, it, apparently it rained all night long. I woke up in the morning, and half the guys in half our tent were like, Will, there was a massive pool here all night. We were just soaking wet all night. I was like, wow, that's weird. I'm like up the hill here, and it's all good up here. That's really strange, isn't it? But the guys who'd set up the girls' tent, you know that hole in the top of the tent, and it has that covering over the top? For some reason, the guys hadn't put that on quite right. And so the girls woke up in the middle of the night, in a pool of water, shivering, cold. I mean, it was brutal. And, and Amy had never been camping before. This was her first experience. And so in the morning, she took her sopping wet uh, uh, sleeping bag and hung it on the fence to dry. And the, the firewood guy's mum came along with some more firewood, praise the Lord. And we finally got a fire on the go. But she also brought their dog and he he got right out the van and just made a beeline for Amy's sleeping bag. And then he proceeded to just mark his territory there. And, and it was literally the worst thing ever and the funniest thing 
ever, all in the same moment, have you ever been caught in the rain? (laughs) Maybe not as bad as that. But isn't it brutal when life gets that place where it's cold and it's raining? Think about these guys, Paul and these men. They literally clamber out of the sea onto the beach and then it starts to rain and it's cold. What do you do when life gets cold? What do you do when doubts come? What do you do when it gets difficult? What do you do when it begins to rain in your life? Grads, as you leave youth ministry and you leave school and as you get to the middle of the summer and the fall into this new season, there's going to come a time where it gets cold and it's raining and you feel like, what's going on? The question is, what do you do when it's cold and rainy? Look at verse three. This is what Paul did when it got cold and rainy. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. This is the key. This is so important. When life gets cold, don't sit down. Stand up and stoke the fire. Let me say that again. When life gets cold, don't sit down. Stand up and stoke the fire. Don't sit down. Stand up and stoke the fire. But how easy can it be when it gets cold and rainy to just head on over and, and, and you know, the fire's there and the people are there, but it can be so easy just to come on over here and fold our arms and say, no, I'm done. I'm sick of the rain. I'm sick of the cold. I'm sick of that dog and his sleeping bag on the fence. Like just, this should be a lot better than it is right now. And you know what? It can be really easy to actually sit down in passivity. This is actually our culture all the time. I don't know if you guys saw the 30-year-old son who got evicted from his parents' house by a judge. This is our culture. Actually, what passivity is, is just rejecting all responsibility in our lives. And, it, and we actually look for distraction in our lives instead. Just distract me from the tough things. And it numbs our heart from the reality of what's really going on. What do you distract yourself with? Is it video games? Is it Netflix? What do you turn to when it's cold? You come over and get away from what you know you should do and just fold your arms and get hard-hearted and say, oh, I'm just going to get distracted. You know what? This is probably my worst enemy. You know, when Elise and I are hanging out at home, Elise does this really good thing. that She puts this thing on the kitchen table and we go to the living room and sit there and have a conversation. But my cell phone always seems to be in my pocket or worse, even in my hand. Do you remember this? We had to have a... Yeah, I remember this. And we'd have to have this conversation of like, you know, sorry, we'd be having a conversation and suddenly... And my attention would go right to the phone... And Elise is there like, are you kidding me? Like, hello, husband, your wife is in the room. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I'll be there in a minute. Yeah, like, okay, right? How easily do we get distracted? Actually, it's just being passive. It's not taking responsibility and taking leadership in our lives. You know, I want to read you a quote from um, a 14-year-old girl, which I thought was actually 
pretty helpful for us when it comes to social media because I think social media can actually be one of the biggest distractions. This is what she said about social media. She's 14 years old in the States. I thought it was totally okay to post things on my Snapchat story every hour of every day. This brought me what I thought was happiness. Being liked meant feeling happy and that meant I had to keep posting. I found myself feeling the need to constantly post but was never actually really happy or satisfied. It was weird. I felt I needed to post things to be happy but the more I posted, it really didn't make me happy at all. I think a lot of kids are posting like crazy to be happier but don't realise that posting stuff doesn't actually do that. Life, the distractions in life are often the place that we turn to when it's cold. We think, I'll just go and do this some more. I'll just, if I can just look at this some more, it'll make me feel better. The distractions in life is actually being passive and it doesn't actually solve the problem when life gets cold. Don't sit down, stand up and stoke the fire. And I'm gonna get some fuel today to stoke this fire. I'm gonna come to my friend Alex who... Thank you, Alex. I'm going to come and grab this first bit of fuel, which is going to be the fuel of prayer. When life gets cold, stoke the fire with the fuel of prayer because prayer isn't a duty. Prayer is actually a delight. Do you know that about your life? Prayer isn't a duty, it's a delight. I've been so thrilled to get to know Simeon. He's one of my really good friends. Give us a wave, Simeon. Simeon over there is getting married to Julia in six days. Come on. So excited. And I get the privilege of being Simeon's best man. It's going to be awesome next Saturday as we, as we uh, head into that wedding. And you know, Simeon was sharing me this week as we were hanging out that he has a house and a plot of land in Rwanda. And when he knew that he was going to get married to Julia, he thought, you know what, I'm going to have to sell all this and so we can, you know move across to Canada and the wedding and somebody actually prayed for him and said, you know what, I feel like God's saying that he's going to provide everything but he doesn't want you to touch your house or plot of land. And Simeon was like, what? Like, I don't see how this is possible. How's God going to provide outside of this? He moves to Canada and he, he doesn't have a work permit here. He can only do international work as a translator. And so Julia began to pray when life got a little cold. Lord, where's the money going to come for Simeon? Where is it going to come? I don't know if you're in a place where you're like, where's the money going to come? Where's the money going to come? Maybe you want to sit over and just ignore it in passivity, but Julia took the fuel of prayer and began to stoke that fire. And as she prayed, it was literally a matter of days. Simeon got this phone call or email from another part of the world from a person who would normally give a very small job and give a whacking big job just a number of days later. Not only that, just about three days later, Simeon was cutting the lawn and he gets a phone call from Italy from this lady. The, the, the night before Julia prays, God, would you give Simeon a job? The next morning, he gets a phone call from Italy from a client. I have no one else who can translate for me. It's only in your language. Please, can you, can you do this? Oh, it's, and it's a big job. And Simeon's going, what? Prayer works. It fuels the fire of our relationship with God. Don't sit down, stand up and stoke the fire. 
pray, ask him, call out to his name. We told you about how our basement got flooded. We just finished it and we didn't understand it because it ruined the floors and our floors, we got them for 50% off and we got free floors for the bathroom. I mean, what a miracle. And then they got rained on, they were ruined. We didn't understand it. And it was cold. (laughs) It was shivering. There was an opportunity. Do I sit down and get confused about what's going on and we stoke the fire with prayer and we began to pray as we were installing the new floors our friend John Anz was installing them he'd managed to get these floors for absolutely free from a job that he was doing and he puts all these floors in and he gets close to the end and there's a gap at the end and we're like okay Lord what's going on here and the, the few little pieces left we lay hands on these pieces of floor And we say, be multiplied in Jesus' name. And he lays all the floor down. Do you know what? There was a gap at the end. (laughs) So the next day, John drives to the the flooring store where he works. And and the manager gets word that he's coming to buy something. She calls him up and says, hey, John, I heard you're coming for this. He said, yeah, I just need one box of this particular floor in this particular cup. What? Yeah, just one box of this particular floor in this particular colour. Well, I have one box of that particular floor in that particular colour in my trunk. You can just have it for free. So John comes home. He finishes the floor and Jesus multiplied the flooring. Prayer works. When it gets cold, don't sit down. Stand up and stoke the fire with the fuel of prayer. Let me say this one more thing about prayer. The greatest prize of your prayer life is not the provision. It's the provider himself. The greatest prize of your prayer life is not the provision. It's the, it's the provider himself. You get him. You get relationship with him. Carrie Newhoff, a pastor in Toronto, said this. Prayer isn't a button to be pushed, but a relationship to be pursued. Don't sit down. Stand up and stoke the fire. Stoke the fire with the fuel of prayer. But when it gets cold, I think it can also be really difficult to not get trapped with negativity. Like when our basement got flooded, it's really easy to get negative and down in the dumps. Maybe you're a, a skeptic here today. You're not actually a follower of Christ. You're, you're, you're not really sure about the Christian faith. Well, firstly, just thanks for coming today. It's really good to have you here as a part of our service today. I want to make you feel at home. Maybe you went to church as a kid and then once you went through a couple of storms in life, you thought, I can't get my head and my heart around this God thing. I just... I can't believe in him. And how easy is it to get resentful and push back against the, the, the idea even of God? We get resentful. I don't believe in him. We hear it on the TV all the time. We hear it in our schools all the time. Resentment against God and his kingdom. Maybe you're a Christian and, and, and you're in a cold and rainy season and actually negativity in your life turns into gossip. How easy is it when it's raining and cold to start talking about someone else? But you know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? He said, judge not so that you wouldn't be judged. And listen to this. This is actually really important when it comes to negativity and gossip. With the measure that you use on someone else, the same measure will be used on you. 
The way that you judge someone else, you yourself will be judged. That's what Jesus said. Think about that. He's talking about God on the last day, but also I think there's something in this about what you sow, you reap. Think about the last time you were sitting in a room with people gossiping about someone else. You know what you're basically saying? I want a room of people gossiping about me. Isn't that scary? How easy is it to get lost in this place? The great news of Christianity is that whether you're a gossiper or whether you're someone who's been gossiped about, Jesus took the judgment for you as a gossiper and you can be set free. The good news of Christianity, if, you're a, if you've been gossiped about and you feel bullied, is that Jesus was mocked and gossiped and bullied till the bottom of the pile, till he hung on a cross to set you free from the pain of that. He experienced what you experienced. Don't get trapped in negativity. Don't sit down, stand up and stoke the fire. This time, Peter, we're gonna stoke the fire with the word of God. Anyone ready for this one? I wanna answer a question to start with. Can we trust the Bible? We can trust the Bible. Have you ever struggled with that question? I actually want to just speak to that a minute, not just for the people here, but into this culture and into this city who says, the Bible's done, it's finished, it's fairy tale. You can't listen to it anymore. In fact, it was just made up and it's not even consistent and there's loads of problems in it. Maybe you've felt that question come to you before. Let me speak to that. Scholars use a number of factors to legitimize whether a document, from an ancient document is legitimate or not. Can we trust this? And, and one of those f- factors that they look at is how many manuscripts do we have that are consistent of this document? And the second one is how quickly was it written after the event actually happened? Basically, the more the merrier, the sooner the better. Make sense? Let me read to you an excerpt from the book Problem of God by uh, Pastor Mark Clark from Vancouver who's reaching lots of skeptics who uh, would question the legitimacy of the Bible. If you've ever had that question, let's settle it today with these things. This is what he says. Scholars point out that if we compare the number of New Testament manuscripts to other writings in antiquity that are accepted as accurate, we find that it is the most trustworthy set of documents in the entire ancient world for existence. And forgive me for butchering people's old names here. Thucydides... That was terrible. Lived from 460 to 365 BC and wrote extensively about Greco-Roman culture. Most scholars trust what he reported in his writings as historically accurate. Keep, Keep with me here. We have in existence eight copies of his writings, the earliest transcribed 1300 years after the events of which he wrote. There are five copies of Aristotle's poetics dated 1400 years after the originals. Caesar's Gaelic Wars describes the events that occurred in 58 BC and the few manuscripts scholars have are from 1000 years after his death. There are two ancient biographies of Alexander the Great that are seen as authoritative and fully accurate, the earliest of which was written 400 years after Alexander died. Historians trust all these writings as historically accurate. So, what about the New Testament? Believe it or not, there are over 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents in existence. This is the greatest number of manuscripts by far of any writing of its kind from the ancient world. 
Another complaint skeptics lodge against the Gospels is that they are written too far after the events they record to be trusted. But all of the above non-biblical examples were written between 400, check this out, 400 and 1500 years after the events they record. And they are accepted as accurate. The New Testament, however, was written as early as 15 to 50 years after the life and death of Jesus Christ. Let's settle it today. The Bible is the most trustworthy document in antiquity. Don't doubt it. But not only is the Bible trustworthy, the Bible is life-giving. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates into our lives. Psalm 107 was a profound scripture for me the other day. Let's, let's apply this. The other morning, I was discouraged and down. It was cold and wet. And I had the opportunity to come and sit over in negativity and be discouraged and down and sorry. I'm not supposed to sit down. I'm supposed to stand up and stoke the fire. And so I took out my daily reading plan. It brought me to Psalm 107, which right at the end, the last verse in Psalm 107 says that God stands at the right side of the needy to save him from those that would condemn him to death. And right in that moment, I recognized myself as God, I'm a needy one. I need you, and yet you stand at my right side. You're with me. I find strength in that, God. I thank you that you saved me from those that would put me to death. Don't sit down in negativity. Stoke the fire with the word of God. What do you do when it's cold and raining? Don't sit down in the seat of isolation. You know, this is really really easy to do. The devil's plan for you is loneliness. The devil's plan for you is isolation. The devil's plan for you is to keep you away from good things. And in a self-centered world, if all we do is seek our own selves, we just end up with ourselves at the end of the day. And it's a lonely existence. Grads, You're going to get to a point in the summer where you have the option to sit down in isolation. Youth events going to be done. School's going to be done. You're going to be on your own in the workplace. And the question is, are you going to give in to isolation? Maybe not physically. Maybe you'll still come to church, but maybe spiritually and emotionally, you just withdraw yourself. And you know that feeling when it's not, you don't go deep anymore. It's just an inch deep and you just present what the surface is. Don't give in to isolation. You know, I'm reminded of um, a guy in the scripture in Mark chapter 10. His name was Bartimaeus. He was blind and he lived in Jericho. And Jesus came through the town and he'd often sit on the roadside and beg for money. And there was a ton of people there. And Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was coming through. And this is what he did. He didn't sit down in isolation. He didn't sit down in silence on his own. Because isolations will silence you. Isolations will cut off your prayer life. But this is what Bartimaeus did. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. And everyone around him said, shh, shush. 
Be quiet. Sit down and shut up, Bartimaeus. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you've been praying for a prodigal in your life and you feel that word inside of you saying, just shush, just, just be quiet. It's not even worth it. God doesn't listen to you. Maybe you're praying for a loved one. Maybe you're praying for that financial provision. Maybe you're praying for something to change in your life and there's a voice inside of you that says, just, just shush. Don't, don't bother with it anymore. Just stay blind. You're never, nothing's ever going to change. But this is what Blight and Bartimaeus did. He didn't sit down. He stood up and stoked the fire. Verse 47 says, he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus called him to himself, touched him, healed him, and he was set free. I don't know if you feel tempted tempted to sit in silence or sit in isolation, but don't sit down. Stand up and stoke the fire. Stand up and stoke the fire. Next, we're going to stand up and stoke the fire with community. This is a really important one. This is what you can do and this is why you should do it. I'm going to give you three things to do. Stoke the fire with community by being honest. Tell someone what's really going on because if you don't, you have to carry it all on your own. Be honest. Secondly, own your mistakes. Don't hide what you've done wrong, but confess it. Tell the truth. Because everyone needs forgiveness and you can find it in Jesus. Own your mistakes. And thirdly, hang out with people. What? Did the preacher just say hang out with people? Yeah, hang out. Eat together, laugh together, be in community. Young people, teenagers, don't sit in the basement playing video games. Hang out with people. Get with someone and, and, and laugh and joke and have some fun. Sit with your mum as she cooks dinner and sit at the table and talk to her. Maybe you feel tempted to just be a loner. Maybe being with people makes you feel scared or nervous. Don't be a loner, be with people. You know what I found fascinating this week as, as I thought about this is that actually the human nature craves community. I think of our little nephew, Jack. If you haven't met Jack, I mean, he is just the cutest, happiest little child. And if you're at the McLean household, you are lucky if you can get a hug from Jack because he is in everyone else's arms but yours, it seems like, most of the time. Because everyone's just all over him, giving him all these kisses and and just hugging him and telling him, I love you, I love you, I love you more than that auntie and that uncle, I love you, I love you. I'm your favourite. Say, say, Uncle Will's your favourite. Uncle Will's your favourite. Right, little Jack, and he's just loving it. And he's just giggling and laughing and talking. You've seen it in the, in the babies in your home. Isn't it amazing to see a baby loved from day one? They flourish, they grow, they become who they're called to be. But you know what? Not every baby in the world experiences that. Our global workers, Reinhardt and Darcy, we heard a couple of weeks ago, who work with the abandoned babies in the hospital in Romania. And these babies might get a bottle a day, they might get their diaper changed maybe after the weekend, and they sit there with no interaction, no affection, nobody picking them up and hugging them, telling, I love you, you're special, you're created, God loves you. Nobody does that. And do you know what happens? They stop growing. 
their physical bodies stop growing. Dawson and Jenna, you guys have seen it, right? And they just deteriorate. They, I, I was hearing about these two babies who would lie in the crib and just wouldn't respond. They wouldn't say anything. They just, just there. But now those two babies have been brought into the Rasa family center. And you know what they're doing now? They're running around speaking two languages, interacting, laughing, talking. Human nature tells us that you were built for community. (laughs) Church, you were built for community. Stoke the fire of your relationship with God with community. Otherwise, you'll end up in isolation. Don't sit down, stand up and stoke the fire. Let me just say this, it takes work to have a relationship with God. Not religious actions, not religious actions, but heartfelt, engaged decisions to say, I'm going to choose you today. I'm going to choose to open up and read today. I'm going to choose to connect with you today. It takes work. When YouTube calls, don't sit down, stoke the fire. When seduction and temptation calls, don't sit down, stoke the fire. When distraction calls, don't sit down, stoke the fire. You know what, let's look at verse three here. So in the cold and the rain, Paul gets up and he does something. He doesn't sit down and sulk and moan. He does something. Verse three, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. A snake came out and bit him on the hand. You know, it's often when we begin to stand up and stoke the fire that the enemy tries to bite back. It's often when you open the word and start to believe it that the enemy goes, I'm not gonna let that happen. And he tries to bite you. Maybe it's with temptation. Maybe it's with doubts. Maybe it's with questions of God and his existence. You know what bites Paul back? Let's keep reading. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. The bite back against Paul was accusation from the enemy. This is actually really fascinating. Listen to this church. Paul was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. Earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 7, he, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 8, Paul approved the stoning of Stephen. And then in Acts chapter 9, it it literally says in the text, still Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Often accusation against you is true. Often accusation from the enemy is true against you. And imagine Paul in this moment, he climbs out of the sea, he comes on the beach, he gathers sticks, he throws them in the fire, he's stalking the fire, he's doing the right thing and boom, the snake comes and hangs on his hand and the people around say, well, this guy's gotta be a murderer. I just imagine Paul in his mind, all those people that he said yes to stoning and threw in prison and and beat and, and dragged away from those churches just flashed in his mind and all the guilt and shame of his past flashed before his mind. Maybe you're sitting in guilt this morning from yesterday, that thing that you did, 
from this morning on your drive to church. We often can sit in our guilt and our shame, but this was a battle that Paul couldn't win. And church, let me tell you that your past is a battle that you cannot win. It's a fight that you cannot beat. Sure, we got to stoke the fire, we got to do all that good stuff, but there is a fight in your life that you cannot win. Look what it goes on to say in verse four. Though he has escaped from the sea, they said, justice has not allowed him to live. These Maltese men probably believed in some Greek God and they had this kind of karma worldview. Karma basically says, my past equals my present, my present equals my future, my future equals my past. It's just an endless knot of do better to pay back for the bad in your past. It's just an endless trap. And maybe you're a Christian, but you actually live with a karma worldview. You think, well, my past equals, equals my future. I better just do better to pay for what was in my past. But that's not Christianity. Maybe, maybe you're a Hindu here today or a Buddhist. It's awesome to have you here. Welcome to Gateway Church. Maybe you have a Buddhist or a Hindu in your workplace. Connect with them. Often Buddhists and Hindus believe in this issue of karma that somehow everything they do will ultimately end in self-realization. And actually, a lot of other religions think, well, Christianity is just the same as that. Do all the right things and then you'll get to heaven and you'll be with Jesus for the rest of eternity. Jesus was a good guy and all that. But that's not the message of Christianity. Christianity is the snake bite, is a fight that you could never handle. Your past is too bad. But Christ came down to the earth and took on your brokenness and your sin on the cross and carried it so that you could be set free from your past rather than being controlled by it. Don't sit down in, in accusation. Don't sit down in accusation. But stand up and stoke the fire. Stoke the fire with what? What do, we, what do we beat accusation with? The thing that we beat accusation with is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the only hope. This is the only answer to the question of your past. You know what? This is the only answer to the question of your yesterday. Jesus Christ dying on the cross and then rising again three days later. And maybe some of you are sitting in the room saying, really, Will, do we have to talk about the gospel again? Like, can we get to the, the meaty stuff? Can we get to the stuff like to just tell me how to be a 50-year-old Christian and keep doing that stuff? This is the answer to your Christian life. The victory of Christ on the cross. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, bless you, bless you, bless you. Don't get caught in a karma worldview. Oh, I better just keep reading and praying. I've been doing it for so long now. If I stop, maybe God will judge me. Your works don't save you. Stand up and stoke the fire with the victory of Christ on the cross. And let, let's just open up this passage a little further because it's actually amazing. Like, I wanted to set this up because I want us to really get the picture of what's happening here. Paul's standing over a fire and he's got a snake hanging on his hand. 
And that's what's happening, but there's a bigger picture behind it. It's the biblical picture of a snake. Let's just look through the scripture a little bit and look at this issue. In Genesis chapter three, in the Garden of Eden, there's Adam and Eve, right? And the snake comes. What comes? The snake. The snake shows up and tempts them to turn from God in disobedience and to eat the fruit. And they eat the fruit and pretty much swallow their own death and separation from God. The snake represents our disobedience to God. But in that garden, God turned to the snake and said, snake, the seed of this woman, Eve, is going to crush your head with his foot. And that was a prophecy of Jesus Christ going to hang on the cross to crush the work of Satan in our lives. In Exodus chapter 7, if you don't know the story, this is where the Israelites are in the captivity of Egypt under their slavery. And Moses and Aaron come with this message from God to say, let my people go. And they stand before Pharaoh and Moses uh, and, and Aaron's um, staffs they have in their hand, which represents the power of God. They threw them on the ground and they turned into what? A snake. And Egypt did the same. They brought the snake in. And do you know what happened in that story? Aaron's snake, the staff of Aaron, swallowed up the snake of Egypt. The snake represents your slavery to sin. But Aaron's staff represents Jesus Christ who would ultimately swallow up your slavery and set you free. Numbers chapter 21, snakes in the wilderness, the people of Israel rebelled. Have you ever rebelled? God sent snakes into their midst and they began to bite them and they'd die. And God said to Moses, set up a snake on a pole. Set up a curse on a pole so that the people could look to it and be saved and healed. The snakes in the wilderness represent your rebellion against God. And some of you are saying, I'm not that bad, I'm, I'm pretty good. And we're going to get to that in a bit. It represents your rebellion, but that snake on a pole, stay with me here, represents Jesus Christ becoming a curse hanging on a pole to bring healing to your life. The snake is disobedience. The snake is slavery. The snake is rebellion. And Paul has it hanging on his hand there, being accused of his past rebellion and disobedience and, and slavery. But after this moment, further in the New Testament, John would write in Revelation chapter 20 of the, the serpent, the great serpent, which is, this, which is Satan and the devil himself, who would ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. Isn't this interesting? Look at the big biblical picture of the snake, right from Genesis, right through to Revelation. It's the picture of Satan coming against God and trying to take as many of us with him as he can and God coming and bringing salvation and redemption to set us free from the snake. And let's jump back to Acts chapter 28 and look at what Paul does. He, however, Paul, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Gotcha. Think of that big pit biblical picture of the snake as Paul's hanging there being accused of a murderer and the snake's hanging on his hand and he just goes Jesus Christ is my freedom Jesus Christ set me free from slavery Jesus Christ set me free from my sin 
Jesus Christ set me free from my past. Jesus Christ set me free from my rebellion. Snake, you get into the fire. That's where you belong. There's a snake in your life and you can't beat it. The only answer to the snake in your life is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't matter if, you're, if you've never given your life to Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years. The answer to the problem you're standing in front of is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. Don't depend on your own strength. Don't depend on your own blood to fight the venom of that snake. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross who can set you free. Don't sit down, stand up and stoke the fire with the victory of Jesus Christ. So we're not supposed to sit down in accusation. Even though, and this is important to touch on, the problem of your past is a battle that you can't win. We've just addressed that. But this is really important. I want to drive this home. The bite back of accusation in your life, you do not have a leg to stand on to defeat it in your own strength. Paul wrote himself once he got to Rome from this moment. He got to Rome and he was in prison. He wrote a letter to the Romans and he said, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's been bitten. With his snake scarred hand, he wrote in Romans chapter six that we're all weak, ungodly sinners who are ultimately enemies of God. And some of you are saying, yeah, but I'm not that bad. Maybe you're not a Christian. You go, Christians always talk about sin and we're all sinners. And I don't, I don't get it. I'm, I'm a good person. But think about it for a minute. Let me do a little survey. Have you heard of the Ten Commandments? This is God's law book. This is God's glory. This is God's standard. And let's just work through that list a little bit for a minute and see if we're good people. Maybe you'd say, I'm a good person, nothing wrong with me. Have you ever lied before? Think about how many times you've lied. Anyone, what do you call somebody who lies? Okay. Think for a minute, have you ever stolen anything? And even if it's small, like a sweet or a bag of chips or something like that wasn't yours or a pen in school. Yeah, don't try and hide from that one. Anybody stolen anything before? No, the Christians don't want to stick the hand up at this one. No, I don't want to. What do you call somebody who steals? Jesus, one of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery. Don't sleep with somebody else who isn't your spouse. But Jesus said, that's what you've heard. But I say you don't even look at somebody else lustfully and lust after them because you committing adultery with them in your heart. Has anybody done that in this room today? What do you call, yeah, I'll put my hands up. What do you call, what do you call yourself now that we've been through that list? Let me tell you, you've self-admitted to being a lying, thieving, adulterer who when you stand before God on the last day will not make it through to judgment. Let me ask you a question, heaven or hell? What do we deserve at the end of the day? 
You don't have a leg to stand on before God. And if you, if you are here for the first time, you've never heard what God did to solve that issue. Let me tell you today. He came down from heaven and he became a man in the form of Jesus Christ. And the penalty that you deserve for all those wrong things, I don't know if you understand, but there is legal implications for being a lying, thieving, stealing, adulterer. You can try standing in a court of law and say, yeah, but judge, I'm, I'm really sorry. Oh, okay, we'll let you go then. No, you're guilty. Unless somebody comes in and pays your fine, says, oh, they've paid the fine. Like, let's get him out of here. He's not guilty anymore. Jesus Christ came down and took the penalty for your sin and he hung it on that cross as he died and he paid for it in full so that we could be set free. The only answer to the accusation of your past is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. Don't sit down in accusation and condemnation, but stand up and stoke the fire with Christ's victory on the cross. Let me finish today by just praying and then Ken's gonna come up. Father, I want to thank you for the message of the gospel, the good news. Lord, that even though we deserved sin, even though, the, sorry, even though that we deserved death, Lord, that you came and saved us by the victory of the cross. And so, Father, in this place today, I pray that you would fall upon each of us by your Holy Spirit. And open our eyes to see the wonder and the majesty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, we need you. We look to you. And Lord, I pray for those in the room who maybe have chosen to sit down in negativity or chosen to sit down and be passive. Lord, that you would stir them to stand up and stoke the fire of their relationship with God today. Lord, would you fill us with a wonder for prayer? Would you fill us with a wonder for your word? Would you fill us with a wonder for one another in community? And would you ultimately fill us with a wonder for the sacrifice and the cost and the price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross for us? In Jesus' name, amen.